the dot. Let's get started. Hope everyone got enough to eat. If you didn't, there's still plenty left. Uh, welcome, those of you that are first timers. It's always cool seeing new faces here, so we are so glad to have you. And I wanted to let you know, so you see the camera here every week, I can record video, put it on YouTube so people can watch and catch up if they are missing after miss a week or something. And especially when we're going through a book like, well, any book in the Bible, particularly Leviticus, where we build on things that have come before, then it's kind of important if you miss a week to be able to jump back and go, oh, I got 30 minutes, let me catch the video from last week and see where we are. So the cool thing is by doing this, we're also building a library of scriptural resources. So we have everything from Genesis 15 all the way to where we are now. So if you know anybody at your church or in your small group or just in your friends that are like, yeah, I want to know more about the Bible, but I don't have time to go to a study or my work doesn't let me get over there or whatever, then you can point them to the YouTube channel and they can follow along, they can watch, they can use them for their Sunday school classes or small groups or whatever. But more than just the video too, we also take the audio and put it on a podcast every week. So for people who are more on the go, like people that commute a lot, or people that like to work out or cut the grass or something and put their phones in, you can listen to each week as well. And there's other resources on the podcast. I just uploaded um, two of a four-part session I taught last year. It was four weeks. It's at Good Shepherd Church, but it's, uh, it's called To Know and To Be Known, Forming a Thoughtful Biblical Sexual and so it's like four weeks all about the Bible and sex and relationships and what it says, what it doesn't say, the really, really racy parts that don't get read in churches and all that kind of stuff. And it's totally free. Each one's about an hour and, an hour and a half long, and it's four parts, and two of them are up right now. But you can get that on your phone. Like, I have the app that it goes through is, if you don't have an iPhone, if you have an iPhone, go through iTunes. Just search Disciple Dojo, and you can download it. If you have an Android, you have a smartphone, go to SoundCloud and you can pull it up and it's just got like weeks and weeks and weeks worth of all of the podcast stuff. So it's super simple, but those are resources that uh, that I'm trying to make available to extend the reach of what we do here outside these doors. The benefit of being here is clear. You get Ruth's Chris food. That cannot be replicated online. So you do have that advantage, but if you can't make it, or you've got people that are just interested, like, well, what's that Bible study like? I've never been to a Bible study at a steakhouse on a lunch hour. Then you can actually pull up on your phone and say, well, here, take a listen. This is what it's like. So, shameless plug, done. Let's get back to Leviticus. So chapter 14 is where we've been in Leviticus. And if you've been coming here for a while, you know we usually do about a chapter a week. But we've spent two, this will be the third Time we've spent time in Leviticus 14 because it's a big chapter. Um, it, it's a, it covers a range of issues or it covers a, you know, it's, I don't know how many verses, it's like 57 verses. That's pretty long in terms of scripture. And it's one of those chapters that you just, you skip when you're reading it on your own. You just skip it because it's boring. Because it talks about mildew in a house. What does mildew in a house have to do even remotely with God and your life, right? That's the challenge of Leviticus. That's the challenge of this whole book. And what you've hopefully seen if you've been coming is that Leviticus is not interested in giving you rules to live your life by. It's not interested in giving you steps to peace with God, to borrow from the Billy Graham phrase. 
or uh, uh, your best life now, or any of those slogans that, that Christianity seems dominated with these days, Leviticus is working at a much deeper level. Leviticus is giving Israel a blueprint for how they as a society in the second millennium BC, ancient Near East, will reflect the holiness of the God they serve to a watching world. So every facet of Israelite society is God has something that he speaks into. Every aspect of their life is to be in some way, shape, or form guided by the God that redeemed them. Because remember, what, what, what happened before Leviticus? What book came before Leviticus? That's not a trick question. Exodus. Exodus. A lot of you were here for it. I spent a year with you studying it. I know you know this. Exodus came before Leviticus. What happened in the Exodus? God brought Israel, a group of slaves in Egypt, who were toiling and building these structures for a maniacal king who thought himself a god. God brings them out of that slavery, and does he set them free to wander as they will and serve whoever they want? No. He says, you've been serving, and the word in Hebrew for serve and worship is the same word. You've been serving one supposed God. I'm going to free you now to serve the only one who is truly worthy of being served, the one true God. That's the problem with, with slavery, is the reason it's such an evil, is because it usurps the role that only God should have over another human being. Only God should be the master. Anybody else is an unfit master, is, is a pretend God. And so he takes them out of slavery to Pharaoh, but he brings them into slavery, worship of himself. And that's what happens at Mount Sinai. That's where they get the covenant. So at Mount Sinai, <clears throat> we saw this, how God called this all back in Exodus. God called Israel to gather around the mountain. And it's, it's a mountain somewhere, we don't know where. It's not the traditional location, that's for sure. But uh, somewhere maybe in northwest Saudi Arabia or what's supposed to be Midian. Uh, somewhere, this nondescript location. He calls Israel, gather around the mountain. And then in stages, he says, now the elders, the people, the, the, the decision makers, the elders of the tribes come up the mountain, part ways. And the elders come up, and there it's like they see the presence of God, and they see that there's a separation from him, but they can still get a glimpse. And there's this covenant meal that's celebrated as they're inaugurating the covenant, which, as we've talked about, has uh, political implications in that world at the time. And then he calls Moses Aaron and, uh, to come up, Joshua and a few others, to come up even higher to the holy place where he is, where the cloud has enveloped the mountain. So this is where only the priests, basically, because this, this time Aaron and Moses are really the only two priests. They can come up, and then he calls Moses himself to the very top, to the summit, where he and Moses speak face-to-face -face for 40 days. And what we see then in Leviticus, or at the end of Exodus, God says, now I'm going to go with you as you enter into this land that I'm giving you in keeping my promise that was way back in Genesis 15. I'm going to take you in this land and we give this to you because I made a promise to Abraham, your ancestor, and I'm fulfilling it through you. I'm going to go with you. I'm not going to be a God who dwells in the highest heavens, unreachable and, and unsearchable and unfathomable and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not going to be a remote deity. I'm going to be a God who dwells in your midst, who dwells among you. So that means that I am going to travel with you. Now, God is still God. He's still enthroned above all creation. He is still the sovereign king of the universe. But in some way that's 
not ever really explained. He says, I'm going to dwell with you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll live among you. And so he creates, he gives Moses this blueprint for this thing that we've been studying for 14 chapters in Leviticus, this thing called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is just a fancy word. It means dwelling. And dwelling is just a fancy word for tent. Literally, it's a tent in Hebrew. God is going to pitch his tent with Israel as they pitch their tents around his tent. But he's God and they're Israel. He is divine. He is holy. He is perfection. They are sinful. They are fallen. They are part of the race of Adam who he is sending to them to redeem. So there have to be safeguards put in place for both people's sake. For, for the sake of God's holiness not being defiled and for the sake of the holiness of God not breaking through and, and, and overwhelming sinful people. We talked about in Leviticus and in Exodus the holiness of God more than anything else it's likened to fire. It's likened to a cleansing, a purging fire, a refining fire. This is an imagery that we use uh, as metaphor in English, but to say, you know, this person's really refined. Well, that's a, that's a term that means you've been put through fire and all the impurity has been blasted away, has been burned away, and all that remains is what's pure and good. That's what refining is. And that's the holiness of God. Is his, his holiness is when it's a refiner's fire. It's, it's if you enter into God's presence, and there's this, and, and the unholiness is, is all you are or all you know, and there's no protection, then it's like walking into the middle of Chernobyl with no protective suit on. Walking into a fire with no fireproof suit on. It's, it's, it will overwhelm and overcome sinful people because it's the holiness of God that's unimaginable. And so what God is doing in Leviticus is incredibly dangerous and incredibly profound. He is saying, I am going to come and dwell among you. My holiness will dwell in your midst. And in order for that to happen, I am going to create this entire system whereby I can do that without consuming you. I'm going to, to uh, divinely condescend to dwell among you. There's no other God in the ancient Near East claimed to do this. Gods in the ancient Near East, the way you worship God in, in Israel's surrounding cultures was through idols. Idols were an embodiment of the God. So an idol was created of, you know, Bel or, or, you know, or Baal or El or um, Chemosh or any of these other gods. You, you make an idol through an incantation, through a ritual, that idol would be instilled with the essence of that God somehow and placed in that God's temple. And that's how that God dwelled among you as a people. Well, at the center of the tabernacle, which was Israel's version of a temple, what do you find there? Nothing. There's an ark. There's the Ten Commandments. There's Aaron's rod, which we haven't learned. That'll come later in Numbers. But in the midst, that's just God's throne. The, the, the cherubim with the wings, they're not facing the worshiper. They're facing each other. Their wings are, are, are put as the footstool of God. So God's plan was, no, you're not going to have an idol that represents me. You're going to have me. And I will choose to dwell among you. And I will choose when and how you can approach me. As opposed to the ancient Near East uh, beliefs that were just like, yeah, this is how you do it. Say the right words, offer the right sacrifices, and God's got to do what you want. And God's teaching Israel through this. And through Israel, he's teaching the world. No, I don't work that way. You, you, you don't. It's, humanity is, is, was intended to do my will for all of creation, not vice versa. 
And that's something that God, through Israel's entire society, is teaching all of the watching world and all of the reading world who are reading this that would come out. So then Leviticus, in Leviticus, he begins by saying, this is how this tabernacle thing is going to be used. And so we look at the sacrifices and what they were. And we talk about how the sacrifices were, how Israel got their meat. It was how they practiced their butchery, how they raised, you know, they raised animals and, and, and they were an agrarian society. And, and that's how they ate was, was through this participation in the, in the cultic ritual of the sacrifice. And then God uh, did things like said, when, and these are the types of animals you can sacrifice. Oh, and these are the types of animals you can eat. And the ones that aren't on this list you can't eat. And by doing that, God was severely limiting the diet of Israel to basically pastoral animals or their wild counterparts. Uh, and there's a whole, there's, there's tons of that on the food laws and the cleanliness laws and the purity laws and everything that we've talked about already, so we'll go over it again. But what he was saying to Israel was from, from the altar to the kitchen table, I'm involved. And then in the last uh, couple of passages we've looked at, the last couple of chapters, it's even, he's talked about the, the whole thing of like skin diseases and what's translated as leprosy when we talk about, it's not leprosy, it's, it's like skin disease, it's sarah, it's a Hebrew term. And it can mean anything from a, a rash to, you know, types of balding, to a scar, to a burn, um, to even something that gets in your clothes, mildew in your garment. And we'll see today, it can even be in, in stone or in plaster. Uh, but he's giving them these rules about tzara'at, about these skin diseases or these covering diseases. And even in that, what we're seeing is that God is not just concerned with um, ethical behavior, but he's also teaching a full, it's like Israel is, okay, you remember, who, who grew up in a church? Anybody grew up in church? Who grew up in a church where they had children's time? Right, okay, so children's time, for those of you that didn't, children's time is, before the sermon, the pastor or the children's pastor or the youth minister or just some person that they got that morning because they couldn't find anybody <laughs> will come up and they'll say, all right, all the kids come to the front. So all the kids will come to the front and they'll sit down and the person will talk to them. They'll do a little children's lesson. And it's almost always super simple, one point, and it always has a visual illustration because you got to do that to capture kids' imaginations. And um, my dad used to do it when I grew up in his church. And so I remember many children's sermons. And it always ended by us getting a piece of candy to take back to our uh, pews. So that was, the, that was the way they got you as a kid. It was like, come forward and get some candy. But while they're doing that, they would, the, the children's lesson was always a visual. Like when my dad taught us, uh, when I, I remember this clearly. I think I was four, maybe five. I don't think I'd started kindergarten. And he asked if he could borrow one of my matchboxes next day. And I was like, yeah, sure. Yeah. So then the next day at church, he gathered all of a sudden. This is a little inner city church. There's like five of us. Um, and he, he had the little matchbox car and he drove it this way on the communion rail. And then he turned it around and he drove it this way. And he said, you know what I just did with this car? He said, this car just repented. And he said, yeah, repentance means turn in the opposite direction and go the other way. That's brilliant. That stuck with me for 30-something years. <laughs> to this day, I remember repentance. It doesn't mean feeling you're sorry. It means doing the other thing, turning around and going the other way. Well, that's a children's lesson. Very easy, very clearly grasped. But it involved a visual that seemingly had nothing to do with the term repentance. But it stuck with me. 
and you all will remember that from now on. If I had a matchbox car, especially, you'd remember it. But the point is, it's a, it, it was an object lesson that was super easy to remember and communicated visually something that if he had just said, repentance means you turn around and do the other thing, right? It wouldn't have stuck. But it will always link it to that visual of the little matchbox car turning and going the other way on the communion ring. That's kind of what Leviticus is doing with Israel as a nation. Israel as a nation is getting an object lesson. And in fact, Israel as a nation is becoming the object lesson for all the other nations. Because for 4,000 years, 3,500 close to there, people have been reading Leviticus. And they've been reading the object lesson of the society of Israel. And through that, they've been learning something about the God of Israel. Now, people have been confused about it. They've not known what to do with it. They've tried to skim it for laws that they like, and they, they disregard the ones they don't like. So that's why you say people say, oh, Christians, you shouldn't get a tattoo because the Bible says not to. And that's Leviticus chapter 19. And the next verse says, but don't shave your beard or trim your sideburns either. And usually it's from a clean shaven person. So, in other words, there's an inconsistency of Christians when they interpret what they do because they don't want to do it. But what we've been talking about here at the study is seeing Leviticus not as a set of rules, not as a set of laws, but as the blueprint for a society that God was trying to create to model, to be an object lesson to the watching world. Because you always have to connect the dots. Why did God call Israel? Is it because he liked the Jews? Well, they weren't Jews at this time. That would come after later when Judea would be settled. They, at this time, they were Hebrews. And God makes clear in Deuteronomy later, I didn't choose you because you're better than anyone else. I didn't choose you because I love you better than anyone else. I chose you because I'm being faithful to a promise I made to my friend Abraham. And I made a promise to my friend Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 that through his offspring, through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Israel was the vehicle by which God was bringing the entire world back to him that had been separated from him through going their own ways and doing their own things. And that's the story, that's the meta-narrative that's unfolding of the entire Bible, of which Leviticus is a small part, but a crucial part. So it's important to keep that in mind, to keep our bearings, so that when we read this, we don't just go, what does this have to do with anything? Chapter 30, or verse, chapter 14, verse 33 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When you enter the land of Canaan, right there, there's a, there's a throwback to Genesis 15. When you enter the land of Canaan, why are they going to Canaan? Because back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham, Hey, walk outside your tent. Look around you. Look at the stars in the skies. Can you count them? That's how numerous your offspring are going to be. I'm going to give you this land that you're in, that you don't own any property in, Abram, that you're a sojourner, you're a wanderer. I'm going to give this land to your descendants in 400 years. This is now nearing the culmination of that promise. God's saying, now, when you come into the land of Canaan, and the whole backstory in that is that I promised your ancestor Abraham in order for you to be the blessing to reach the entire earth. Right? So you can jam that right in the little space between Canaan and the next word. Right before the comma, all of that comes into play. It's a marginal reading. It's not in the text. But um, <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, when you enter the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading sarah in a house in that land. Right? Here's that word. If you're reading an IV, it says mildew. 
you're reading King James or something else, I don't know what it says, but it's sara'ah, it's spreading disease. It's the same word for stuff that could infect your clothing. It's the same word that they would use as leprosy. It's the same, it's just that term. And God says, when you come into the land, and I put this in a house in that land, already there's the sovereignty of God is at work. In the Old Testament, when something happens, nothing ever happens haphazard. God is involved in some way, shape, or form. And this is what Job, books like that, will wrestle with. It's like, okay, how does God, if God allows something to happen or he makes it happen, is he guilty of it? Or is he sovereignly above it? Or it, do what you want with that. But this is what he says. When I put a spreading sarah in the house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I've seen something that looks like sarah in my house. The priest is to order the house to be empty before he goes in to examine sarah so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. All right, so when the priest, this is already lets us know is this just isn't about contagion. What he says, you're, you're, you, you've settled, you've built your house, you live in it now, in the land of Canaan, all of a sudden, one day you see a spot on the wall, and you think, mm, maybe it's just a smudge. Try to wipe it away. It doesn't really wipe away. Well, it's kind of spreading the next day. It looks a little bigger. So you think, okay, this may be something. I don't know what, but this may be the sarah, the skin disease. So you go tell the priest. The priest will then say, okay, get everything out of the house. Because when I come, once the priest declares it unclean, then it's unclean. So in order for and everything in it is unclean. So in order for everything in it, you know, your valuables, your clothing, your goods, your merchandise, your furniture, all that stuff, get it out of the house. Because once the priest says it's unclean, then it becomes unclean and anything in it becomes unclean. So this already lets us know that this isn't just talking about contagion, like a contagious thing. Because if, if, if a fungus is in the house and it's just about stopping the spread of a contagion, then you wouldn't take the stuff out of the house. You would leave it where it is. You'd quarantine it, right? So this isn't about physical, this isn't about biological health preserving, although it would have those aspects to it later. This is about preserving the cleanness, and we talked about that term, what it means. It doesn't just mean dirt-free. There's a theological meaning to the cleanness, the purity, the holiness of this house. So the priest is to order the house to be emptied before he goes to examine the mildew so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. He's to examine the mildew on the walls. If it's a greenish or reddish depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest shall go out the doorway of the house and close it up for seven days. On the seventh day, this is the same thing you do for your red lessons, same thing you do if he sees a skin disease or something on the garment. It's the same thing. This is now extending it to your dwelling place as well. Um, uh, on the seventh day, the priest shall return to inspect the house. If the mildew has spread on the walls, he's to order that the contaminated stones be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the town. He must have all the inside walls of the house scraped and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside the town. Then they are to take other stones to replace these and take new clay and plaster the house. That's how the houses would be built. You build them with stones and then you put a coat of plaster. Usually during the rainy season, that might decay or it might fall off some, so you re-plaster it. But the house walls were basically stone with plaster exterior. So think of drywall over something. Like it's that kind of thing. You've got the house and then you've got the outer facade. So you've got to scrape off and you've got to make sure that you've got the infection or the spreading or the sour eye. Make sure you've got it out and then you reconstruct the house. 
43, if the mildew reappears in the house after the stones have been torn out and the house scraped and plastered, the priest is to go and examine it. If the mildew is spread in the house, it's a destructive mildew, a destructive sarah. The house is unclean. It must be torn down. Its stones, timbers, and all the plaster are taken out of town to an unclean place. Anyone who goes into the house while it's closed up will be unclean till evening. Anyone who sleeps or eats in the house must wash his clothes. But if the priest comes to examine it, the mildew is not spread after the house has been plastered. He shall pronounce the house clean because the mildew is gone. To purify the house, and this is the same ritual we saw for the body. To purify the house, he's to take two birds, some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. And we saw last week that means make a brush, right? This, the, the, the cedar wood is the handle, the hyssop is the spongy bristles, and the scarlet yarn is what you tie it up with. So he's got a splatter in the brush. Uh, to verse 50, he shall kill one of the birds over fresh water in a clay pot. Then he is to take the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet yarn, the live bird, dip them into the blood of the dead bird in the fresh water, and sprinkle the house seven times. He shall purify the house with the bird's blood, the fresh water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet yarn. He is then to release the live bird into the open fields outside the town. In this way he will make atonement for the house, and it will be clean. How can you make atonement for a house? A house doesn't sin. How can you have a car repent? <laughs> right? You see this? This is an object lesson. This is, this is not, this is where people read the Bible and they read it from different perspectives and they come in, they start saying, oh, well, the Bible's got these ancient rituals and this is what they believe and drive the evil spirits out or this is akin to voodoo. You know, you do this ritual and it, none of this ritual has any causative, tangible effects. This is after the house has either been declared clean or unclean. This is dealing with theological or ritual cleanliness and purity, not how to do these home remedies to make your mildew go away. That's not what Leviticus has. That's not what it's teaching. That's what we read it as because we read, you know, you got mildew, spray this on it. Pray to the gods for this many days. Throw some dirt on it and then do this and do that and poof, it's gone. But that's not what Leviticus is teaching. This is, this is a huge object lesson in showing the same lessons from last week. If you missed last week, check the video, check the podcast, and you can catch up with it on that whole ritual with the bird and the live bird and what the blood symbolizes. In Leviticus, remember, blood symbolizes life. Water from a pure source, a spring or a cistern, symbolizes cleansing and renewed life. This is, once again, God exercising. He's cleansing what was symbolic. What did the Sarah symbolize? Death and decay. God is overcoming. He's taking the power of life which is symbolized by the bird, the blood, and the water. And he is cleansing what was marred by death. Life is overcoming death in this object lesson, all centered around a stone, mud, plaster house in the land of Canaan. It's an object lesson. The dwelling place where God will dwell is in the tabernacle, the tent, the dwelling among his people. Later, he'll dwell in the temple. And the word temple is related to the ancient Near East word that just means big house. So God's house has all these prescriptions and rituals and things for preserving its holiness. God's people are to be his priests to the world. So it's only natural then that their house must also be preserved and pure and holy in some way, shape, or form. Now, it won't be to the degree that God's is, but just as the people that are anointed after being cleansed from disease aren't anointed to the same degree that the priests saw. Again, that was last week with the mystery. But the principle is God will dwell 
in all his holiness among his people. And so his people should reflect that holiness in their lives, even down to the seemingly insignificant things like the plaster on the walls of their house. House, your house in the Bible is not like today. If you're in real estate, houses come and go. You flip them, you make money. You live in an apartment. That's not even really your house. It's just where you live or a town home. In the Old Testament, your house was built on your land. Your house on your land. Three, sometimes four generations lived in the house together. You got married, your son got married, and, and you got a new extension of the family. You build an extension onto the house. So houses came to be like these, almost like motel things, where there's like a courtyard in the middle, and then rooms along the outside. But your house was symbolic of more than just where you live. It was your household, your family name, your identity, your people. So God's holiness in the houses of the Israelites was a powerful way of saying that the holiness of God, that the, the purity of God extends even to the dwellings of his people. And then the New Testament will carry that forward because the New Testament will talk about how um, there's going to be an event that would happen where God's house would be torn down and then rebuilt in three days. And it got torn down and it's never been rebuilt. And what the disciples realized was that, oh, Jesus was talking about his body. He was talking about himself as the house of God. He was God dwelling among his people. That's the word that John uses. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. That's the word dwell. That's the word tabernacle. God became flesh and tabernacled among us. So Jesus, at the time of the arrival, all of these hints and shadows and object lessons of the Old Testament that were pointing towards Jesus, when he comes on the scene, they all coalesce in him. And so he becomes the house of God. He becomes the bread of the presence. He becomes the springs of living water. He becomes the final sacrifice. All of these imagery that's used throughout Scripture, if we don't know the Old Testament meaning, then they kind of just zoom over our heads and we just think of it as religious talk. But what he's very tangibly saying is, I'm the focus of all of this stuff. So the more you know all this stuff, the more you know about me. And then what he does is through the new covenant being uh, inaugurated, the temple now, the dwelling of God, is no longer in one place in one city. And it's not in a church building. You don't go to church. You bring the church. Because we are the church together. So the house of God becomes the people of God communally. So this is why when the apostles are writing the New Testament letters and they're, they're seeing these churches, these, these many extensions of the kingdom of God, and they're seeing this sin that's rampant among these churches, and the churches don't seem to care or they're celebrating it, and the apostles will say the same thing. Get the uncleanness out. Remove the yeast. Right? It's, it's the same. It's Levitical imagery. What they're doing is they're saying, you now are the house of God. And so your holiness... Your, how you carry yourself among yourselves has implications for the holiness of God. And just like Israel was called to reflect God's holiness to a watching world, believers in Israel's Messiah now, Jesus, are called to reflect God's holiness to a watching world. Because the orders haven't changed. Just the vehicle through which they, ex people experience it has changed. The goal is still the same. Genesis 15, through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Then we find out in the New Testament, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. And then Jesus invites everyone, no matter who your parents are, no matter what nation you come from, he invites you into, become part of, the house of God. 
And so when we read these Levitical prohibitions for how they were to maintain their house free from contamination, then that teaches us, just like a little matchbox car on the rail, that teaches us a key thing about holiness and about who we are as God's people, as God's house together. There's so much more that can be said, but we are 90 seconds over. So you guys have to go back to work. Uh, have a great week. Uh, there's plenty of food left if you want some seconds. And come back next week. And then next week's fun. We're going to talk about everybody's favorite lunchtime discussion topic, bodily emissions. Ooh.